So this week we talked to the hosts of The West Wing Weekly, and though it's about the show The West Wing, which hasn't been on the air in some years, it reminds us of The West Wing right now, and that like kind of gets me a little <laughs> a little heated. So uh, there may be swearing on this week's episode. This has been your obscenity warning. So my kids' nursery school, the principal sent out a or principal director sent out an email with the subject line missing. And then it's like, one of our children is missing a bike helmet. I'm like, that is not the subject line that I, you want. That's that, that. That not how you talk to Jews. Yeah. Also, one of our children is, is missing. Yeah. One, one of our, our children, children is, is missing, missing a bike helmet. <laughs> a bike helmet. Hello, matzah-eating Jews. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week in the middle of the season of The Unleavened Bread by senior writer Leah Leibowitz. Give me pasta. And deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Do you want quinoa pasta? Because <laughs> we can have that now. <laughs> Only if you eat kitzniot. Uh, a Jew-Gentile combo this week. We're welcoming actor Josh Molina and uh, podcast host Supremo and composer Rishikesh Herway, who are the co-hosts of The West Wing Weekly, a podcast that traces episodes of The West Wing and also interviews fun people. And it's just a massive hit. And I will say that when people talk to us about Jews of the Week we should have... It's Josh Molina. Nobody comes more recommended to us than, why haven't you had Josh Molina on yet? Um, which is which is something we'll get to. Like, he's he's more central to the world Jewish experience no, right now. No, he's the Jewish Kevin Bacon. He's the and I inter- play, I have a lot of greatest Jew. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. His, his latest role is his most important. <laughs> public Jew on, on Twitter. On yeah. Twitter. Uh, we also welcome... P-J-O-T. A, <laughs> we also welcome a bonus Jew of the week, uh, Rabbi Rick Eisenberg, who uh, is a former pulpit rabbi who now works as an opioid addiction counselor in the Jewish community, among, among other communities. So an amazing show this week. Uh, keeping you just rolling through the matzah eat Days just sun up They're from from the matzah and eggs sunny side up in the morning from to the matzah the matzah bride to the matzah <laughs> yeah. uh, to the matzah pizza. Oh my <laughs> we're, God, we're here. I'm sorry, actually, not all week. We can't get behind you. Know? I love matzah pizza. Oh, my kids like making matzah. You can do an assembly line, right? Oh yeah, you put yeah, out the shredded cheese. Kids. You put out the shredded cheese. You put out the tomato sauce. So you have, if you have four kids, what you have? Um, that I feel like that gives one. Like there's one. There's a shredder. There's a spreader. Yep. There's a shredder. Yep. There's a I don't know what yep. you do from there. Yeah, they could have their own Domino's. Well, after Pesach, they could have their own Domino's pizza franchise. <laughs> it's like one in the assembly line for everything. They avoid the noid actually. Um, Passover is almost over. Um, I just say Passover is my favorite holiday. First of all, it stretches out like a long time and we get those like special days off at the end, um, which is one of the perks of working a tablet. You get like Shavuos break, (laughs) basically no work during October. Half day tuba of. And I always think about people who actually like need those days off and and, and have to request them and I always feel a little bit guilty but I'm also just like, it's mid-May, I'm on Shavuos break. (laughs) But... I love. I mean, like to be honest, like Exodus, my favorite book. It's just like it's such a good story, and I feel like the, it, I love that that we all got to just sort of sit together and tell. You just tell a story, and there's literally nothing more Jewish than that. Yep. This Passover was notable at the Oppenheimer uh, household at the Oppenheimer Ranch because uh, I finally introduced my kids to Bamba, the national food of Israel, which is as kosher. you know, which is kosher if you eat kitniot for Passover. Which for people who don't know, it's like beans and rice. It's not the the specifically forbidden grains, but it's grains that traditionally have been forbidden. But conservative Jews now say, well, you can eat that stuff. And Sephardi Jews have always eaten that stuff. And there is this Israeli treat. It's They are peanut puffs. They're basically cheese doodles, but that taste like peanut butter. Tastes like peanut butter. And I brought some, so Stop and Shop in Greater New Haven now carries Bamba. And I was shopping the other day. And you were I was stopping, like, you were shopping. And I said, I'm gonna buy that Bamba. 
and I bought it. And of course, the whole family's addicted now, including the dog. You know those people who talk about smoking oh, dogs, out their dogs? Dogs dogs love it. Yeah. Is it because it's peanut butter and yeah. dogs love peanut I, butter? I, I have my dog hooked on Bamba. So, uh, when I was in army, yes. uh, we have special- Wait, Leal, are you Israeli? What, what do you mean? <laughs> this, can't you hear by, uh, by my Gal Gadot accent? Uh, we, had a, we had a guy every evening, different guy, run to the store. The store was open for 45 minutes every evening and get a huge pack of like Bamba. It was the Bamba monkey. It was the thing. It was a, Instead was of it, cocktails after dinner, <laughs> it was Bamba. Did it rotate? Like, did everyone yep. have a turn as the, uh-huh. bom- the Bamba Abs- monkey? The, the Bamba monkey. The Bamba monkey. Uh, the other thing that I want to announce is that we finally have come together on a book to debut the Unorthodox Book Club with. Um, it wouldn't be an Unorthodox Book Club if we didn't, like, fight for a long time about the book. And like delay the entire thing <laughs> right. because we couldn't agree. Right. Our fans have been asking for this for months and months and months, and we finally agreed that we were going to read Ruby Namdar's book, The Ruined House, which is one of the greatest books, one Leal, of the greatest Jewish books written in a very, very long time. Speaking of long, it's a, it's quite, it's, it's quite, not, it's quite hefty as a book. It's now, like four hundred and change, but a lot of the pages are interestingly, graphically interesting, are skimmable because they are not really doing work of the And a lot of them also plot. are about having sex and eating meat. Yeah, it, it's, it's very plot Something driven. for everyone. Something for everyone. Trust us on this one. So Liel read it. He then was, was bullying us to read it. I finally read it, and it blew me away. I could not put it down. I read it in the original Hebrew. Oh, does it do something? <laughs> Have you even looked at the translation, Liel? I've read the translation. I've read it in two languages. How's, how's, how, is, I'm like, how is Hillel's translation? I was, I was into Ruby Namdar before you even yeah, knew. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Hillel Hawkins' translation is majesty. It's a really amazing. So we're going to get Ruby on in June, I think, but people should order their copies now. Let's, let's drive this thing way up the bestseller list. This is a, a kind of indie book. It's his first novel. He's not a huge superstar on this side of the Atlantic. Let's buy, the, let's buy the heck out of this book. And let's have a conversation about books because we Jews, yo. Sometimes we read. We of the book? Once it's in like a, while. a lot of pressure to be the people of the book. That's right. It's a lot of pressure, not least because people have conspiracy theories about us. And with that, we begin the news of the Jews this week. Now, a couple weeks ago, you may remember we talked about the Washington, D.C. city councilor who had a theory that the Rothschilds were controlling the weather. Uh, and that's why it was snowing in Washington in March. Now, what's interesting about this is, first of all, that he thinks that humans control the weather. Second, that he thinks that Jewish globalist banking families control the weather. But then we discovered on our Facebook page and from a lot of listener feedback that even some of our Jewish listeners didn't realize that Rothschild is a dog whistle code word for Jews. They were like, what? George Soros is Jewish? Rothschild's Jewish? I thought they were all just like shady international bankers. You mean Seinfeld? What? <laughs> So the interesting thing is, like, the Rothschilds themselves are not anti-Semitic, but when used to, like, convey a shadowy banker conspiracy, then yes, they are dog whistles. And, like, George Soros is just a person, but, like, when you hear George Soros's name or, like, see it on a poster somewhere, you're like, oh, yeah, they're talking about, like, what they think of as, like, an evil Jewish overlord. Like, right. there's a very Jewish thing going on. It's like on. a Mad Libs game. It's like... <laughs> Banker plus uh, globalist plus intellectual plus homosexual equals ta-da! And ta-da. in a weird way, all those posters of these people have like this, like these weird noses on them. Like it's like every clue is there. Why basically. are they all hunchbacked with large noses? Yeah, I'm like it why was... are they all holding piles of gold? <laughs> so there was this strange thing where we, that we were kind of encountering the fact that a lot of people don't know. I mean, when you work at a Jewish publication, yeah, like we know. We yeah, know we know the, from these. Dog we whistles. know from Soros, Rothschild. What are some of the other good ones? Well, my favorite is uh, Trilateral is, Commission. Uh, a couple, a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was the famous scandal that rocked, you know, British politics when there was a mural that uh, head of labor Jeremy Corbyn supported, and the mural showed uh, a poor people on all fours, and on their backs, uh, four gentlemen, shall we say, with 
prominent bulbous schnozzes, shall we say with beards, shall we say with large piles of money in their hands, were, were feasting. Uh, and the artist is like, this is anti-Semitic. Be like, I think, I think, I think it you know. is. I think it is. It's sad to me that, that people don't, like to me it's so obvious, but you're right. Like we are, we work in a Jewish magazine. We see these things every single day and you almost sort of become inured to them. Another word that's come up recently is globalist, right? This word that in a weird way is like this high profile dog whistle of, of Jewish basically. Then we we saw that with Gary Cohn, like Trump says it himself. And you're just like, globalist, that's crazy. Because at its core, it means just somewhat, you know, like it, it comes from an academic belief in the sort of like intercontinental relationships the and things like that. The conspiracy is worldwide, no, But right. then what it actually means is someone who is not a nationalist, right? right. Who doesn't believe who, in the country. Next, yeah. Anti-patriotic and who, and traitor. It, it plays on all those same stereotypes of sort of being like dual loyalties, things like that. So globalist is like another one that I almost don't know that people know. But I'm going to I'm gonna take it to the next level. Next time someone asks me on like a tax form or something to state my profession, I'm just going to say globalist. It's like, really? <laughs> what do you do? I globalize. Well, when they ask me for like my country of origin, I'm, I'm just going to say, say I'm a global Z- citizen. I'm going to say Zion. Zion. <laughs> Uh, speak, it's, I'm it's, just going to do a dollar sign. Like, by the understand. way, it's so depressing that these are there. Well, we just have to do like a glossary of anti-Semitic dog whistles. But it's also kind of a win, right? Because our British listeners will say to us, you know, in England, everyone knows that Rothschild is a anti-Semitic dog whistle, right? If you say Rothschild, you mean Jews. Although our one of our listeners also said, well, there are other English code words, right? So apparently North London intellectual means Jews, oh right? If you say, well, this is a law that the North London intellectuals support, you're saying the Jews. You're saying like Golders Green. Right, exactly. So I've actually say, I volunteered to import that to America. Like if they're Jews moving to the neighborhood, yeah. I'm going to say, I think these North the London people, intellectuals. You know the people who moved to number 79 down the street? North London intellectuals. S- South Brooklyn intellectuals. South, <laughs> South Brooklyn, great neck intellectuals. Hate those guys. <laughs> um, in the news of the anti-Semitism, which isn't always what we do, but Sometimes it's what we do. I have to say, lately, it's, it's, like it's a lot of, a lot what, of what we do. We do. Uh, friend, Things are super depressing. Friends Seminary, the um, ancestrally, historically Quaker private school in downtown Manhattan. This story blows my mind. This was my favorite story of the past um, 18 to 21 months. Uh, a teacher named Ben Frisch made a Heil Hitler salute apparently, depending on the version you believe, when he was demonstrating an obtuse angle, he was a math teacher, <laughs> and he was trying to show <laughs> me what obtuse an indeed. obtuse angle was. So he lifted up his hands, making an obtuse angle, and then with one palm aloft, he said, Heil Hitler, or Sieg Heil, or something. That's actually funny. Okay, I'm doing it. You're doing an obtuse angle? I'm doing angle? it right now. I'm not doing a salute. I'm doing an obtuse angle. Yours looks more like taxi. <laughs> Mine's like, <laughs> Which is me, pre-Uber I'm way I'm wearing of, high uh, heels. <laughs> Manicure drying. Oh, right? that hurts my arm. So... And then he was, some students complained, and then he was fired for anti-Semitism in the classroom. Now, this teacher, Ben Frisch, is half ancestrally Quaker. He's descended from the family of Murray's, after which Murray Hill is named. And but, Murray's bagels. Oh, <laughs> well, that's, that's the other half. That's, that's the other half. And Bill Murray. And Bill Murray, right. Uh, and my Uncle Murray. But he also is half Jewish, Polish Jewish Holocaust survivor. Like his dad was a refugee and his grandparents died in the Holocaust. So here's this that Jew- filthy anti Here's this Jewish teacher making a sick Heil, Heil Hitler gesture, which by the way, my grandpa Walter used to do sometimes. Like if you have your palm aloft, why not say it? Uh, Charlie Chaplin made it funny. Mel Brooks made it funny. Seinfeld has made it funny. Paul Mazursky's like, there are a few by the jokes. Way, I don't know if you knew this, but like this is actually the way the salute got started. Hitler was like, if you already have your hand up, why not just say it? <laughs> and the Germans are like, <laughs> We'll give it a shot. Heil Hitler. Heil Hitler. Oh, wow. Look at that. <laughs> we feel empowered now. So my read on this was, here's this, this Jewish teacher, widely beloved, right, who has his hand up. And when your hand is up, making what's obviously a Nazi salute, why no, please, not— please, an obtuse angle. Why not make the joke? When you're obtuse angling, make the joke, and he gets 
fired for it. And after what, 34 years of 34 service. years of, of service. And then, you know, the administration is like, well, when this came to our attention, some other nefarious things came to our attention, but they won't he say was what. He stepping down the hall. <laughs> he had a strange armband that he refused to take off. He told all so the did, students they have to us? concentrate that's in class. <laughs> it was almost like a concentration. He had this weird class. OCD thing about people in lines. He liked to be right, in real okay. lines. This, so, anyway, he gets fired. And I'm seeing this as actually, I see this as a somewhat anti-Semitic firing because basically here's a Jewish teacher working out of, I think, possibly a comedic Jewish tradition, which is lots of mocking of Hitler, you know, subverting Hitler, mocking Hitler in order to endure the Hitler. And he gets fired for it. And I, you know, Quakers... You know where this would never have happened? Where's that? A Jewish school. (laughs) Exactly. Mr. Frisch is awesome. It is funny. Look, there's a way in which mocking Hitler is like sort of the ultimate tool, right? Like laughing at Nazis is something we have historically, I mean, not that long historically, but that's sort of something we do and it helps. It's And it's sort of cathartic in some tiny way. So it is funny to see like a Jewish teacher. It's the triumph (laughs) of Gentile well-meaningness over Jewish common sense. Like at a Jewish school, I think it would have been recognized for the joke that it was. Anyway, Ben Frisch. Amen. You're invited on this show. Um, All right. But just don't, no salutes. (laughs) Right. You can be casual about sit it. Sit on your hands. You come on, just sit on your hands, would you, man? Just don't be obtuse. Heil myself. Heil to me. I'm the kraut who's out to change our history. Heil myself. Raise your hand. There's no greater dictator in the land. Everything I do, I do for you. If you're looking for a war, here's World War II. I'll myself raise your beer. Every Nazi, 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 stand and cheer. And finally, in news of the Jews, I, this one, let's just say the headline says it all. Beit Din, or Jewish court, proclaims two Uncle Moishis. Now, I didn't even know there was one. I'm just going to read from the uh, the Canadian Jewish News story. The, here, here it goes. This is the story of Jewish sages who, in a decision recalling Solomon, split a beloved children's entertainer down the middle rather than see him come to harm. Now there are two Uncle Moishis, and both are Canadian. And it took a ruling from a Beit Din in New York to make it happen. The Beit Din considered a dispute about who owns the name Uncle Moishi and who can perform the songs that the performer has sung for 40 years. So Uncle Moishi, beloved Canadian Jewish, Jewish entertainer. Song- with, He's sort of the Captain Kangaroo like, of Canada. Is he like a Rashi level? With songs like, uh, Mark, yeah. you, you grew up on these, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, hey, Dum Diddly Dum. And <laughs> Stephanie's favorite, Shake It Up, Zadie. <laughs> okay, I do uh, like that a lot. That was at every bat mitzvah and great neck. So Uncle Moishi, yeah. uh, a beloved entertainer with, with 44 uh, or 38 or 110 albums uh, to, to his name, 120 uh, albums to his name, um, it gets into a dispute as happens in the in the high stakes world music world. Jewish right? children's music. You know, you know rap, right? You know, you know how that stuff goes down. Yep. Uh, and so the producers decide they will make... Another Uncle Moishi. They're like, we made you Moishi. We can make another <laughs> we Moishi. We can unmake you. Is, is anyone's right. name actually Moishi? No. no. And so <laughs> Moishi, one, says, oh, yeah, 
I'm still Moishi. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm OG Moishi. And they say, well, we're going to find a younger Moishi. And the kids are going to love him more because he's young Moishi. The new young Moishi is Rabbi Yossi Berkton, a longtime children's musician and entertainer who used to go by Rabbi B. But now it's like when, was it um, Judas Priest where their lead singer died or something? And so they got the the lead singer of the best Judas Priest cover band to be the new lead singer of of Judas Priest. To be that guy. So Rabbi B is the new Uncle Moishi. So now there are two, for your listening uh, satisfaction, it's double the Moishi, double the pleasure. Here's a taste of Uncle Moishi. Matzah Bakery is where I will go I add the water and knead the dough In 18 minutes my matzahs are baked It's time for Pesach and Pesach is great Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. This week, we have a Jewish-Gentile doubleheader. We're here with actor Joshua Molina and musician and composer Rishikesh Herway. Together, they host the West Wing Weekly podcast, an episode-by-episode discussion of one of TV's most beloved show. Molina played Will Bailey on the show, and Herway is the creator and host of the wildly popular Song Exploder podcast. Welcome, guys. Hello. Thanks so much for having us. Are you in the West Wing Weekly cave right now? Is there, is there, is there a studio? There are we two are respective in our caves. own homes. <laughs> so I'll just tell you, we we are all big fans of the podcast. It also so happens that when we in our Facebook group put out a question periodically, who should we have on the show? Like, hey, thousands of listeners who have lots of opinions, like who should be our Jew of the week? Uh, because we have a Jew of the week every week, and most weeks we also have a Gentile of the week. Ninety-eight percent of them. Yeah, Josh Molina. Say one name. Yeah, like Josh Molina is ahead of Joe Lieberman. <laughs> He's ahead of Adam Sandler. It's it's kind of absurd, um, and we're unclear. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. It's so. also like you're also kind of like the Jewish Kevin Bacon because everyone has like these connections to you that are very specific and very vague at the same time. He's I'm like kosher, bacon. kosher, kosher Kevin Bacon. Yeah, the kosher Kevin Bacon. Like someone in our office today was like, "Oh, his father is the gabai at my husband's bar mitzvah." He, I went to high, and then someone was like, "I went to high school with him." And it's like people just have these very specific and strange connections to you, and want to talk about it all the that's time. That's Judaism. That's not. Uh... That's not special to me. That's Jewish geography. What are you going to do? So true enough. Um, but there are a lot of actors and and public figures who are a little bit quieter about their Judaism. You know, whose Twitter accounts are not filled with references to to Passover, for example. Um, so was that a conscious choice at anywhere in your anywhere in your public life? Did you decide at some point, like, yeah, I'm going to talk about this stuff. I'm going to be I'm going to be out in public. Uh, no, I certainly don't. Re- I, I think that's just quintessentially who I am. And uh, I guess that's what I try to share on social media. So I don't, maybe at some point um, I realized there were some out there who were enjoying it 
and others who are annoyed by it. And that's the, that's the area where I really thrive when I feel like some people are with me and some people are against me. That's what I like. Wait, who's annoyed so, by maybe, it? Maybe the Jews are annoyed by um, it. Yeah. No, I mean, occasionally I get, uh, yeah, we get it. You're Jewish. <laughs> and, uh, and then occasionally on the website for the West Wing Weekly, there are people, uh, you know, and it's not particularly malicious. I'm not, these aren't bad people, but some people are kind of, um, uh, I guess, slightly aggravated by, <laughs> by the Jew talk. They're like, enough already. Talk about the West Wing. And uh, so... All right. If I know that I'm just, you know, pleasing one person and alienating ten, that's when I'm happiest. Okay, so well, let's let's talk about the West Wing. Um, on on the first episode, as those of us who listen religiously know, uh, you guys share the the origin story of of this amazing podcast. But Rishi, do you want to do you want to tell us how this all began? Sure. I like Mark graduated from Yale, um, and it turns out. Josh as well. Um, when I was first getting ready to leave um, school, I wanted to be a composer for film and TV. And I just didn't know anybody. I, I had no one who I could turn to for advice because I didn't know anyone um, who worked in, in film or TV. But around that time, I had started watching Sports Night and I was a big fan of that show, and especially a fan of Josh's. And I discovered that Josh himself was an alum of Yale. So I... Uh, looked around and I found he had a website with an email address on it. And I, I emailed him out of the blue and said, hey, I'm a guy <laughs> who you don't know, but um, <laughs> I have some questions. I also went to Yale. Do you think I need to move to LA or not? Or can I get away with just moving to New York? Um, and Josh actually wrote back to me and and he said, hey, look, um, I don't know many composers. I play cards with a couple of them. But um, as far as I know from all of my experience, if you want to be in film and TV, really LA is the place to be. Um, I didn't listen to his advice. I chickened out and went to New York because it was the safer bet. And then, um, and then I wised up and then uh, moved to LA about a year later. But by that time, Josh's email had changed. I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is like such a Tom Hanks, you know, romantic comedy type of thing, <laughs> right? Meg yeah. Ryan. We type ultimately of thing. met oh, on the uh, email uh, at the top floor of the Empire <laughs> right. State Building. It was very romantic. Right. Just missed each other. <laughs> okay, and and okay. and then we finally reconnected thanks to social media. At one point, somebody retweeted a post from Josh and I, I saw his name and his face and I thought, oh my gosh, it's Josh Molina. And I, I sent a message to him and said, I don't know if you remember me. 12 years ago, I wrote to you and, and you gave me some advice. I, I finally followed your advice, moved to LA. I just scored my first film, just premiered at Sundance. Can I take you to lunch and say thanks for the advice um, and, and just hoped that he might write back to me again? And he did. That's such a sweet story. It's like, it's yeah. really nice when it turns out that public figures are human. <laughs> it's like kind of... True. I like that the whole thing hinges on my expertise as evidenced by my saying, I think most film uh, projects are made here in LA. <laughs> 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 That's really all I brought to the Advice that I Rishi could have table. gotten nowhere else except except from Josh Molina. <laughs> right, exactly. It was, it was that is kismet. Yes, shared, if you will. Now, Rishi, did you try other actors on The West Wing? Were you like, Alice and Janney, would you be on my show? And like, Josh was the one who said yes, right? <laughs> No, Josh. Josh is um, he. He has 
exclusive rights to my love. <laughs> I mean, of course, by the time the podcast started, you had moved on and done a lot of other really interesting work, Josh. I mean, was there was there a little bit of tentativeness about going back to West Wing, dipping back into that well for a podcast? Um, yeah, my only hesitation was that I didn't feel qualified to uh, co-host a show about it. I mean, it's, it's a truism that the fans of a show tend to know it inside and out in a way that the actors involved just do not. So uh, I had been a big fan of the show before I was part of it. And then once I was part of it, I watched, I guess, probably most episodes. But I didn't feel that my knowledge um, was of the show was profound enough to, to hold up my end. And Richie just kept saying, it's okay, it'll work. He knows the show really, really well. I was on it. I'll be able to bring certain, I guess, insight into having been part of the experience. And finally, he did just kind of wear me down and we decided to try it. And once I went back and rewatched the pilot of The West Wing and loved it uh, as much as I did the original time and realized how much there is uh, to discuss with a friend, and then we did it once. I knew that we were onto something, or rather, that he was onto something, and that it was a it was a great idea. So each episode goes through an episode of the show, and what is it like to do that now, given everything that's going on in the real world, in the quote unquote real world, uh, West Wing? Um, painful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and painful on on some level because uh, the the Bartlett administration. Um, compares rather favorably, I feel, to the current administration, but also I would say relevant in that the writing is so good and the issues being discussed in most episodes of The West Wing um, are still relevant today in, in part because change through politics is so glacial that, you know, Ten years after the show ended, um, there are many issues still being discussed on which there has been precious little movement. So it's still very germane to uh, the current political scene. And also, as many of our listeners will express, it, it offers a nice alternative to uh, present reality. And on a recent episode aired a few weeks ago, you guys had Tammy Duckworth come on the show and talk about what it's like when you're to be a senator who's pregnant. Like you actually do deal with real live issues when they when they happen in the show. So it actually, to me, that episode felt completely current, even though it's about a show that was, you know, oh my God, was it 20 years ago? So I have a question. If When this show runs its course, as it inevitably has to, um, does either of you have another show in mind? Like, will, will, can the podcast... Sports can, Night. Can sports the podcast night, Sports Night or Scandal, for example? <laughs> One of the things that makes it difficult uh, to figure out what we could, what we might talk about if once the West Wing ends is exactly what Josh is just mentioning that the West Wing is kind of unique in how layered it is. And one of my hopes with the podcast is to try and create something that echoes the way that I would watch the show, my engagement with the show. I, I never would just watch the West Wing as a form of entertainment for, you know, from beginning to end. It was always this sort of launch pad for um, my own form of, my own very... <laughs> you know, cheap form of civic engagement where I felt like I could, I, I had a, a little lesson about U.S. history and, and I could learn something about um, how legislation is passed and things like that. Um, and sometimes it would prompt me to try and learn things on my own. And so I, I feel like the West Wing is unique in, in that regard. And, and we've tried to do that in terms of having guests like uh, Senator Duckworth on um, breaking breaking down some of the some of the stuff in the plot and then how it actually uh, affects us. Uh, and there just aren't that many shows out there that, that let you have that same kind of relationship with the real world just from what are the you know just from what you see on the screen. 
See, Liel and I are going to start a recap show about Beverly Hills 90210. And so we think... That definitely already exists. Mm. Uh, well, we're going to do a better one, I think. I would listen. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. So, um, Risha, you host two podcasts, um, The West Wing Weekly and Song Exploder. Um, both terrific. Um, very different shows. You also sometimes give seminars on how to start a podcast and what makes for a good podcast. Um, do you have a theory of podcasting? Like, there, I can't think of anyone who is on two podcasts that are as different as those two, but both really successful and popular. Like, do you have a sense of what works in the audio medium and why podcasts succeed and why some fail? I think the one one thing that both shows share is um, that they're both edited. Although it probably doesn't, might not sound like it on on the West Wing Weekly. Okay. Sometimes um, we do edit that show while still having you know a sort of loose quality to it. And I think that uh, for any podcast, regardless of the the medium or the format, um, anything like that, the key is editing. Amen. You came with a question for us, Rishi, as a as a Gentile of the week. You you have, I mean, you have an in-house Jewish expert. So we're we're sort of you know at best a kind of after dinner aperitif to to the dessert that is Josh Molina. <laughs> but but you know if there's anything he hasn't answered for you yet, uh, do you have a question for us? Okay, so my my question is about how food can act as a cultural ambassador. Um, I think about this with Indian food and how it can it might be the first and sometimes it's the only thing that non-Indians know about India or Indian people. <laughs> um, food can be sort of a Trojan horse for inviting people in to learn more about a culture. That said, there's also there can be a big difference between the kind of meals that insiders eat versus the ones that they might present for outsiders because the, you know, the insider foods might be too hardcore or they might be an acquired taste and you don't want to scare people away right away. Um, so, so here's my question. What foods would you offer to an outsider if you wanted to present to them the most delicious impression of Jewish heritage? That's an amazing question. Like, we're, like we're looking for converts, basically. Like, if we're going out really recruiting and we want the food to go front and center. And this is actually perfect timing for us because we just launched this amazing interactive feature called the 100 Most Jewish Foods. And what you say actually yes. is is something that went into the list, right? Like, there's food on that, like, that insiders eat, like, kishka and pcha, which is, like, jellied calves leg. Like, things you actually would not I thought it was jellied calves' hooves. Is it jellied calves' legs? It's hooves. It's, hoo it's, hooves. it's, it's sorry, hooves. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, what, it, it whatever it is, you don't want it, It would guys. behoove me to know the difference. <laughs> so, but like, that is it. And jo Josh actually did write an entry. He wrote Gribbonus. That's right. Um, an amazing entry. So I'm guessing that would that's be That's right. Point. I saw that. Right, I saw that. That's the that's the the chicken skin and onions. Mm. Is that right? It's rendered chicken mm. skin chopped up and fried with onions, I believe. And so is that something mm -hmm. you would say is suitable for insiders or outsiders? <laughs> well, so to your question, and, and we have not shared our own answers on this yet, but Leo, why don't you start? What would you what would be your gateway drug for Jewish cuisine? I would say it should it should follow the same logic you have with, with Jewish conversion. You know, traditionally when you come to convert to Judaism, you know, you're frequently by some traditions turned away several times. Cause it, I saw it that on Sex in the City. It that's another <laughs> show uh, that should have some recap podcast. Um, oh, that one does. I think that it should be something that, that uh, conveys the, the difficulty and the historical uh, trauma. It should basically be the epigenetics equivalent of a dish. So I'm going to go with something like schmaltz rendered chicken fat on a matzah, like something like that. Ooh. 
Taste? Something that just says like oppression. Something that and says you you want a piece of this? Here you go. Bring it. S- since I actually want people to like the food, um, <laughs> I'm gonna go broad. I'm gonna go laka because like everyone knows from laka, like everyone knows some sort of potato onion equivalent, and the laka is so much more superior than the like the hash brown. The laka or the is, home yes, fries. is the worst holiday. You know, I I really you had this is this my enough. answer. It is the worst holiday food imaginable. Don't mansplain potatoes And I also think I'd go lox because lox to me is like a little bit weird if you're not familiar with it. So it has that newness, yeah. but it's also freaking delicious. So I'm. this was a somewhat trying one for me because I grew up not vegetarian and I am now um, try my best to be. I'm mostly vegetarian, um, though I will eat l- other people's meat-based leftovers. Um, yeah, so, that's like me. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Vegetarian-ish. And that's right. And there's a real ethical consistency to that that a lot of people don't understand. But um, so, you know, all in all, look, there are a couple meats that are just beautifully done. Nobody, nobody who likes meat doesn't like brisket or corned beef. I mean, they're just delicious. But the new vegetarian me would say a nice, a nice noodle kugel maybe with some cinnamon and some raisins in it, is just so delicious. It's, no, it's really hard. Kugels are wrong. It's like a sweet pasta. I don't understand. It's, it's, it's pasta and, and sugar. Two of every human's favorite things. I will say my question was prompted in part by a Proustian memory of eating kugel at Slifka Center at the Hillel. Mic drop. And did you like it? He did. I loved it. He- I mean, that, that was... Um, the my favorite thing, and I I would love to have it again. Um, if anybody wants to uh, make me some kugel, La- Friday night uh, well, it's going to be a potato. Now kugel, wait a second, but- Los Angeles. We have a lot of listeners in LA. It's actually like after New York and Tel Aviv. It's our biggest city. Somebody's going to make <laughs> somebody's going to make you a kugel. We're going to set this up. And Josh, how would you a, a answer? Sweet kugel, please, not not savory. <laughs> okay, got it. Sweet kugel. I'm trying to think outside of the box and trying to beat Gribbenius, but I think I would go with Gribbenius ultimately. For me, that's the quintessential. Jewish I mean, we. I did ask food. you if you wanted to write about something, and you wrote back immediately saying like "gribbiness is is or nothing." Yeah, I had that ready. That was my thing. <laughs> but I like how Rishi framed it in terms of insiders and outsiders. That one is so hardcore that most of my insiders won't eat it. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Like, the, no, I mean, yeah. I know plenty yeah. of serious Jews who don't know gribbiness. It's old school. It's Ashkenazi. It's not served many places anymore. Uh, it's yeah, no, it's right, that's pretty right. insider. I agree. I, I agree. feel like it could to make me, like that's it, you go. You want to you want to really eat Jewish? Come with me. Here's the password. <laughs> we're gonna open a little door that you didn't even know was there, and inside we're gonna go eat something special. <laughs> so for me, it's Gribbenius. My wife doesn't want to go near it. My children are not interested. My folks and my siblings will they'll eat it. It's like you and a couple of your old poker buddies whom your wife doesn't like, like the people you have to go hang out with when she's doing something else. And you're like, we're gonna have, we're right. gonna have Gribbenius. Right. It's the kind of there's certain foods that I make and consume. That not only does my wife, uh, who is Jewish, she doesn't want not not only doesn't want to try it, she doesn't want to be near me when I eat it. There's like it's like go to a place of banishment and enjoy your weird treat. Yeah, I we have those foods that are a marital issue, basically. Right, Josh, um, you're on Scandal, and that is coming to an end. And how does it? I mean, Indeed. I know we're, you haven't started the recap show for Scandal yet, but. You've been on a lot of these shows for a long time. What is it like when a show ends? It is a bummer. Yeah, I miss it already, for sure. I don't think it's completely sunk in. We just wrapped Scandal about, oh, I think a week and a half ago. And it's still airing, and it'll air through April 19th. April 19th is the finale. And um, and the way I'm built, I'm already worried about working ever again. (laughs) (laughs) So... Those two, those, that's mainly what I'm going through. Well, that sort it's of goes my to my... over, <laughs> and I miss my friends. <laughs> that, that sort of goes to my question, which is I was going to ask each of you if you wanted to give people a taste of where else they can find you or what else is going on. Uh, Josh, you, do you, have, do you, have any, you must have something lined up, right? 
Uh, well, next week I'm shooting an episode of The Big Bang Theory. I play President Siebert, the president of Caltech. Um, and so that'll be a lot of fun. And then actually uh, next month, most of the month, Rishi and I will be out and about doing uh, live events on the West Wing weekly tour. And we're going to Dublin and London, D.C., Boston, and New York. And I'm super excited about that. So people can find that tour schedule at thewestwingweekly.com, I assume, which is your website. Um, and yes, although uh, it's, I want to mention that there are no tickets available other than those that have been purchased. <laughs> oh, look at you. Dang, Amazing. dang. And Rishi, where else can our fans find you? Um, if they want to listen to another podcast besides Unorthodox and or the West Wing Weekly, they can listen to Song Exploder. I just wrote the score to a TV show on Netflix called Everything Sucks. Um, it's set in the 90s, and it's a very, very sweet show. It's about um, kids in high school in a small town in Oregon, and um, it's sort of a coming-of-age story and very heartfelt, and it was a lot of fun to work on. And I want to drive everyone also to songexploder.net, which is a fabulous podcast. Um, if you're at all like me of my age bracket and sensibility, I would tell people to start with the REM episode, but other people would start with the episode on The mm. Roots or on Weezer or on Michael Iwanuka. Um, I don't. Do you have a favorite, Rishi? I don't have a favorite because um, by the end, uh, I can't distinguish one from the other. That my brain is just a mush, and <laughs> I just have traumatic <laughs> memories of editing um, late into the night. But I'll say the Bjork episode for me was a was a big deal because she's musically she's one of my heroes, and so getting to speak to her was was really wonderful. Awesome. Do you guys think there will be recap podcasts about your podcasts? Right. <laughs> somebody actually somebody did create a very funny SoundCloud file and you can probably find it and it is called the West Wing Weekly Weekly so the, it only ran one episode alas couldn't really sustain itself but it's very very funny <laughs> sort of a one joke episode um, I'd like it to be yeah. in another in another medium right. you know, just as we're a podcast about a TV show we'd rather someone had uh, I don't know an, an extensive two person Tumblr about our podcast oh no it should be it should be modern dance about your podcast <laughs> sure Clear, clearly um, <laughs> Josh Molina and Rishikesh Hurway, thank you so much for being on Unorthodox. You've been a fabulous Gentile and Jew of the week. I'm honored to be included. Thanks for having us. Anytime. crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. 
We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our Jewish guest this week is Rick Eisenberg, who after 25 years as a congregational rabbi became a certified addictions counselor. He focuses on applying Jewish principles and values to addictions treatment and writes and lectures on the topics of Judaism and addiction, recovery, and the opioid crisis. Welcome, Rabbi Rick. Thank you. Rick, it's really good to have you here. I mean, I knew you first um, as, a, as a Connecticut area rabbi, and I thought before we got to your work with addiction counseling, um, could you just say something? I'm always dying to know about people's journey to the rabbinate. Could you, like, when did you realize you wanted to become a rabbi and, and why? Um, I'll make a long story short on that. I was raised uh, by my family to become a lawyer. And even by the time I got to college, I decided I was going to become a lawyer. And then once I got to college, I got interested in spirituality. Um, I got interested in, uh, you know, the counterculture of the 70s. I'll be a little careful about giving details or too many details. And um, Well, you're retired as a rabbi. You could say whatever I could you say want any, now. Right. I mean, what are they going to do, fire me That's from it. a job that I don't have? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, and then um, once I was in college, I became interested in Jewish studies and studying the Bible. Then I went to Israel for the first time after college. College. Once I was in Israel attending a Moroccan Jewish Seder on Pesach. That was the gateway drug? That was, that was <laughs> the gateway drug for me to become observant because I was just so enamored with the way they did Judaism, you know, at that, in that family. Uh, and so that was uh, the beginning of my journey as far as entering into religiosity, sending home an aerogram from Israel to my parents saying, Mom and Dad, please send me my bar mitzvah tefillin. They flipped out. Oh, yeah, they, they, they wanted because, you to be a lawyer. Yeah, what kind of lawyer is he going to be? Uh, so uh, I started to become more observant. And then about a year later, I decided to enter the Jewish Theological Seminary for rabbinical studies, but I thought I was going to go with the scholarship. I thought I wanted to be a college professor. And midway through my seminary studies, I realized that there really weren't any jobs. So, but there were jobs in the congregational rabbit. I had no idea what I was getting into, literally. And for about 25 years, I was a full-time rabbi, and I had really no idea what I was doing. I mean, I think I did a good job at it overall, uh, and I have no regrets at all about having done it. But I can't say that I'm the kind of rabbi who had a calling to the rabbinate. I really kind of stumbled into it in certain respects, and I enjoyed doing it. I, I liked it kind of fit into my social addiction, you know, like the, the need to feed on people's appreciation and adulation and maybe sometimes the need to feed on the opposite, you know, on people's criticisms. Um, 
But that's a whole different story. That's for a psychotherapy session. No, I, li- I mean, time. I, but say say a little bit more about mm-hmm. that. I mean, rabbis don't usually talk about their. You did it for approval. Uh, oh, there's no question that I did it partly for approval because when I was a kid, I wanted to be on the stage. I wanted to perform. Uh, I loved like being in front of people. Uh, um, my bar mitzvah was a wonderful experience because I got to lead the davening. You've heard me daven before. You've daven heard me lead the davening. Yeah, yeah, and you know, so thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. I got to be in front of people and read the Torah and and lead the service, and I enjoyed feeling kind of the vibes of appreciation from other people. But I get a sense so, that also the opposite a little bit, right? When people say, oh, can you believe that, Rabbi? The sermon today was so political. He's too much this. He's not enough that. There's a certain satisfaction in that too, no? Yeah, because you're, you know, you know that people are talking about you and that you're the center of attention and what you say stimulates conversation and people talk about it and think about it. So I think on some level, it, it was gratifying for me. Uh, and it, there was some ego gratification involved in that. But after 25 years of the full-time, and, and, and as I said, I, I, I loved helping people. I loved the pastoral aspects of the rabbinate. But after 25 years, uh, I was exhausted by it, to be honest with you. And at the same time, I, uh, we had a, a, a situation of addiction in my family, and I became very interested in... In recovery, uh, my gateway was 12-step recovery, um, uh, but um, I started taking classes and studying about addiction treatment and counseling and wound up getting a certificate. And then after something like four or 5,000 hours of clinically supervised work, I received my certification. So when you left the rabbinate, um you, you found work as an addiction counselor right. with, a, with a program. Correct. Uh, did you have a lot of Jewish clients? I had some. And I guess I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I know that you work with people, Jewish, non-Jewish, but were there special problems that faced people who came from different backgrounds? Was, was the addiction history and pathology of someone who came out of a Jewish community different or was it treated differently than, say, someone who's African-American or someone who's Roman Catholic? You know, even though the Bible talks about the Jewish people as amsegula, you know, a treasured people, a chosen people, um, I don't think that we are unique or special or different in any way with from other people with respect to alcohol or uh, drug uh, uh, use. It seems as though um, a lot of the treatment and recovery programs, at least the the big ones, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, 12-step programs, are sort of framed in a Christian way. Is there a Jewish lens through which we can look at, at treatment and recovery, and could that potentially make it more relevant to our community? Let me just uh, start by st- by pointing out an important distinction. Uh, 12-step programs such as AA or NA are not treatment. They are self-help or peer support programs. Um, What I've noticed is that, um, you know, I I left the full-time clinic work about nine months ago, so I've just kind of come up for air, and I'm starting to learn about what's going on out there in the Jewish world. But one thing I have noticed is that many of the uh, Jewish-oriented rehab programs are closely connected with 12 steps, I think, which is fine. It's a good thing. I'm, I'm a big admirer of the 12 steps. I think there are a lot of um, consistencies between the 12 steps and Judaism. Rabbi Abraham Tursky, who was really the, kind of the guru of Jewish recovery movement, uh, pointed out, I think, beautifully um, the, the compatibility between Judaism and Torah and the 12 steps. 
Having said that, um, I would say that one of the issues with the 12 steps for Jews who are primarily secular is that the 12 steps is a kind of a faith-based orientation. Even though it starts off by talking about higher power, there's still a lot of God talk and God orientation. If you go to meetings, many meetings will end with the Lord's Prayer, which personally I object to, I have to tell you, because... I feel that... This See, I know that a lot yeah. of them end with the serenity prayer, wrongly attributed to Reinhold Niebuhr, but they also end sometimes with the Lord's yeah, Prayer? Yeah, they often do. Well, and, our Father, uh, wow. Yeah, they often do, and uh, it often depends on whoever's the, the programmer or the secretary or whoever's chairing the meeting. Which you object to why? I object to it because I think the 12 steps, even though they may have had um, origins in the Oxford movement from England and kind of Christian origins, uh, were really designed to to be outside of any particular religion and to be completely non-sectarian, to be a spiritual program. And uh, AA, NA, Al-Anon, all these programs are uh, professed to be spiritual-based programs, but outside of religion. So the issue I have with it ending with the Lord's Prayer is that it is a prayer that comes from the Gospels, and it is a religious prayer. Uh, It's a sectarian prayer, and I think that it just by nature excludes, you know, when people stand around in a circle and they hold hands, and the leader says, we're going to end with the Lord's Prayer, well, there are some people who will stand there with their mouth shut because they don't feel included in that prayer. So um, is there additional shame when people come from middle-class backgrounds, as many Jews do? I mean, is there a sense in certain families this couldn't happen here? Yes, I think that's an excellent question, and I think there is a a, a higher level of shame involved. I think that our Jewish culture has a kind of a very achievement-success-oriented culture that has to do with career, advance, professions, and so on and so forth. And if a Jewish person has an addiction problem, but they're still able to function and advance in a career or do well, then chances are they're not going to be shunned by their community. If you make a partner, who cares if you're snorting coke? Right, right. right, But if they fall off the track, then they're going to be shunned uh, and they might be ostracized. One of my messages that I want to throw in here right right now real quick is that on April 21st, uh, in synagogues throughout the world, we're going to be reading about Tazria Mitzora, you know, the uh, disease that's often translated or misunderstood as leprosy, but some kind of terrible skin disorder of the Bible. And, uh, and Israelites who had it were isolated from the community for a period of time. In years past, rabbis would use Tazria Mitzora as the opportunity to give sermons uh, about AIDS, HIV, AIDS, education, understanding and acceptance, raising consciousness. And one of the messages I'm trying to get out there now, uh, any rabbis out there, I hope you're listening. We have a uh, lot of them, yeah. Dust out those old, take out those old sermons about HIV, AIDS that you gave on Tazri Matsura. cross out the words HIV, AIDS, and switch it with addiction. And you don't even have to write a new sermon. You can simply talk about the need to stop stigmatizing and isolating families and people who have addiction issues and to find ways to bring them back into the community. Use the language of acceptance. Use the language of inclusivity. Stop calling people addicts and alcoholics unless they want to refer to themselves that way. That's fine. Instead, think of them as people who have 
addiction or people who have a particular problem that they're working on, but the problem or the disease or the condition does not define the person in that person's totality. So if someone who is listening knows someone um, or is themselves struggling with addiction, what are some resources you'd recommend, you know, Jewish or not? So uh, I, the first thing that comes to my mind is to, uh, to go right on the web and look up a couple of websites uh, that are government-funded websites. The two that come to my mind that I think are the best are NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse, uh, and the other one is SAMHSA, S-A-M-H-S-A, which stands for the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. On those websites, you will find lots of really good educational information as well as treatment locators or treatment option locators. So you put in your the state you live in, the town you live in, and you'll, it'll come up with different alternatives. Um, I would just Google Jewish addiction and Jewish addiction treatment, and you'll find uh, certain places both in New York and the West Coast, uh, and there are other uh, Jewish um, rehab centers that are in more far-flung rural areas that are providing treatment now as well. I'd love to be able to say, go to your rabbi if you go to a synagogue talk to a rabbi or talk to a mental health professional. I'd like to, I'd, I'm hoping that rabbis will educate themselves more. Uh, I'd like to tell people to go to your Jewish family services or federation funded mental health services and get help and direction in those ways. One last thing, if they have a problem with opioids, um, I would say immediately Get to a clinic, call InfoLine 211, or do a little research on the web. Find a clinic that addresses um, opioid use disorders. Get an evaluation and assessment to see whether you would be appropriate for methadone or buprenorphine. Not everybody with opioid use disorder is appropriate for that treatment, but many, many people are, and they're not getting that treatment. They, they get some messages from certain circles, including some 12-step circles, that you can't really be clean if you're on methadone or suboxone. They are getting some messages from the world out there that if you're on methadone or suboxone, you're just switching an addiction with an addiction. And that is emphatically not the case. Um, Rabbi Rick Eisenberg, thank you so much for your time. Are we done? This was fun. We're done. Thank you for I, having me. I told you it flies by, doesn't it? How yes, can indeed. our listeners get to know more about you? Well, for Jewish parents, there was an article that came out in December, I think, where I talked about the three C's of Al-Anon, uh, the idea that parents don't cause, they don't control, and they can't cure their children's addiction. So I wrote an article about parental responsibility, uh, and I also wrote an article uh, in, I think, that, was, that came out in November th about medication-assisted treatment and the need for people to direct those who have opioid dependence issues to the channels where they will get the most medical attention that they need. Great. We'll try and, to give people links to those. Anyway. And do you have a website? I do not have a website. Wow. I'm I, I'm it's just, refreshing that you don't, actually. I'm, I'm trying to write a book. I oh, just started yes, to write help. a book, and I hope someday no I'll finish the book, and and maybe some people that I trust will give me some advice about how to get, make that happen. They sure will. Right, Mark? They okay. sure will. All right. Thank you all. Thank you for being our Jew of the Week. Okay. 
the mailbox. One letter this week, a very, very moving and interesting one. It came in through the voice mailbox. Here we go. Hey, guys. Uh, my name is Jason Polavoy. I'm a 31-year-old documentary producer in Chicago, and I am calling because I'd like some advice about imparting Jewish heritage on my future son. Um, I was raised Reform, but I attended Hebrew school twice a week and Sunday school every weekend my entire childhood. I was bar mitzvah, confirmed, kept kosher, fasted. Some of my fondest memories from growing up are the family moments observing the holidays at my grandparents' house, and I've always felt deeply Jewish. The problem arises in that I no longer believe in God. In fact, um, it's for a very Jewish reason that I don't believe in God. I can't, don't want to live in a world in which a benevolent God that has chosen my people allows us to be slaughtered over and over again throughout the millennia simply for being Jewish. My wife, who is Catholic, is eight and a half months pregnant with our first son. I want him to feel Jewish in the same way I do. I want him to relate culturally to Judaism the same way I always have, and I want him to be proud to call himself Jewish. But he won't be bar mitzvahed. He won't attend high holiday services. He won't have the moments I had looking for the afikoman with my cousin. How do I make sure he feels proud to be culturally Jewish and identifies as culturally Jewish in the same way that I do? Thanks. Um, look, especially as an atheist, you will agree that there's no there's no mystical magic. It's not it's there's nothing genetic going on or there's nothing in the ver- reverberations of the universe going on that will make your child feel Jewish. If you raise your child with literally nothing in terms of Jewish learning, holidays, um, you know, or or reference points except like your own old affection for a couple TV shows and bagels, then your child will have the TV shows and the bagels, except that he won't like your TV shows because you're old and lame, and it, and he turns out he has a gluten allergy, and so actually has nothing. Like there, there's no there's no Deus ex machina where God drops in some magical dust. Like kids get what you give them. Where the guy you don't believe in drops right. in the magical dust. Kids get what you give them, and then it's divided by a thousand other data points, which is their peers, their uh, their other parent, and so forth and so on. I was a little perplexed actually. It, it seems to me that your thinking on this has become really really narrow. There honestly isn't any reason. That that you can't do as my parents did Hanukkah and Passover. Um, and you could even throw in Sukkot and Purim and all these other wonderful holidays that have been reclaimed and that can have terrific um, symbolic and festive meanings, uh, even for atheists, and have a much richer Jewish life than most Jews historically have had, even while saying to your kid, I think these are wonderful traditions that our ancestors did and this is our cultural heritage, but I don't take a lot of this stuff literally. I, I, don't, I don't see personally why that's hard. I also think that you're giving your 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 unborn child not enough credit, right? For when he grows up, he's going to know he's Jewish, right? He'll he'll know that this is a part of of his his background, and I think he might actually become curious himself to take it on, knowing that it it sort of has jumped a generation. Essentially, I, I think that there's a way in which what we don't have growing up is sort of what you want, what you sort of seek out. And so who knows what actually... Oh, he could be a breast liver chasset. I mean, like this That's kid, probably what's going to happen, be, actually. He is going to Your be. Your son is going to end up yeah. living in Sfat with Peas. You, you, you can name him, you know, Shlomo, Yankel, Shmoykel, Moisha yeah. from that because he's going to be that. But, you know, uh, not to get too Freudian, but I would recommend that you ask, uh, why is this so important to you? I mean, there's something about that note that seems to me it's more than just a nostalgia for you know, a lovely childhood well spent. And there's something about the the, the anger uh, about, you know, with which you address the, the theological question. 
that seems to me that the question is still unresolved. And look, there there have been many uh, very wise Jewish writers. Uh, you know, Martin Buber is one of them who addressed this question quite seriously. Uh, they came out on all uh, different sides, but they've certainly taken it to heart. Uh, I think that before you go ahead and make decisions um, about what kind of education you want to give your son, you're really trying to grapple with what this means to you. And if it ends up being just like, well, I kind of had a nice childhood and I want my son to have the same thing, I think Mark's suggestion to just go ahead and you know, give him these holidays and say, well, we don't believe in any of it is, is, a, is, a, is a functional uh, solution. But it seems to me like there's more there. Anyway, but listen, thanks for the call and keep us posted. I want to hear back from you in one year and again in 12 years. And we could perform the non bris And invite us to the bar mitzvah. We can make a non-Orthodox ceremony to welcome your son into the non-fold. We're just the right people for it. Hey, listen, gang, if you want to send us a letter, write to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. If you have advice for our caller this week, as I know some of you do, that's a great way to give it to him. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 914-570-4869. Another great way to reach us. Mazel tovs this week, Liel? My mazel tov this week is to the great Andrea Sparaccio, uh, who designed uh, our beautiful Haggadah. Uh, that I hope everyone enjoyed over their uh, seder. Andrea was uh, was somewhat victimized by me calling and saying, "But the nun in this third letter and this third word is not right." And she's like, "Which one is the nun again?" Like it was a very intense Hebrew-related design conversation, and we're very grateful to her. Amen. Stephanie. Speaking of women creators, um, my weaders. No. No, just women creators. Sorry. All right. Um, my mouth's top is for Molly A., our former guest and friend of the show. She just came out with her latest cookbook. It is part of the Short Stack series, um, and it's those, which are like those small little books about a specific food. And hers is about yogurt, and she has just like such good uh, recipes about, for yogurt. And a lot of them are Middle Eastern, so maybe appeal to our to our listenership. But yeah, big ups to her. Very good. I sometimes admit to people that my favorite yogurt is good old Dannon fruit on the bottom. And then the looks I get, the disgust in people that it's not some well, special... As well they should. Dannon has a lot of um, Passover recipes this year. They do. Yay for Molly, yay. And my mazel tov this week is to uh, my friend Skylar Inman, who is this uh, young Gentile woman who got out of college and moved to Israel and created a podcast about Israel called Intractable. Uh, she's going to be a guest on the show in a couple weeks and talk about it. And she's trying to solve the Middle East crisis, basically. So my mom, did I mazel tov her a few weeks ago? If anyone I is going trade. to show, no. no, if anyone's no. going to solve the Middle East crisis, it's going to be a woman named Skylar. It's a young Texan gentile named oh, Skylar Inman. <laughs> yeah. Yeehaw! Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or give us a voicemail, 914-570-4869. For merchandise, go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. You know your coffee wants to be in an unorthodox mug. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sbotnik. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Shira Talushkin with help from Julia Frakes. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. And rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Aaron Polanski, who is moving to a new shul in beautiful Kingston, Ontario. If you want to nominate your rabbi to give us supervision, write to me at moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. We recorded Argo Studios, which knew enough not to sign a non-disclosure agreement after its dalliance with Donald Trump. And we're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends.